When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. Your breath is sweet, your eyes are like two jewels in the sky Your back is straight, your hair is smooth on the pillow I lie But I don't sense affection, no gratitude or love Your loyalty is not to me, but to the stars above one more cup of coffee for the road. One more cup of coffee for I go to the valley below. If it matters how you're doing, how you're doing, it's your thing. And if it matters which way you go, that's the way you're going to go. So sang the poet, the crazy poet, Van Morrison. And the way we want to go for today is to talk about things Dylan with friend, producer, project partner, and music listener extraordinaire, David Bellotti. We are talking about the book. You know about the book about man and God and law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan. Available for sale now as an ebook on Amazon and wherever books are sold. You can also pre-order the paperback, which will be released on May 3rd, 2022. We're setting up events and communities in North America and around the world. Visit mangodlaw.com for details. First reviews. First reviews of the book have been humblingly excellent. I'm excited for you to read it. Now, David and I talk about Bob Dylan and race and memory and how Dylan awakened something in two Midwestern kids like us that he, one Robert Allen Zimmerman, had once upon a time had awakened in him also a Midwestern kid, seeking and searching for something only music could provide. David and I sat down in a coffee shop in Philadelphia for this chat. That's what you hear in the background. But don't be shy. Pull up a chair, pour yourself a cup of joe, and join us. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome to Episode 8 of Season 2 
of Bob Dylan about man and God and law, a book, and one more cup of coffee for the road. One more cup of coffee for the road. Listen, here's the deal. You've got this book and these thoughts very deep inside of you. It's part of your makeup and your composition. And that's what I want to share with people is why you and why this book and why now? Well, I appreciate that. And uh, let's go. All right. So I want to ask some contextual questions to start with. Um, We are roughly the same age. Um, We grew up in the Midwest, you outside of Cleveland, me outside of Detroit. We came of age, meaning 13, 14, 15, in the 80s. Um, I saw Dylan in 1988 for the first time. And the reason I saw Dylan is because I was a huge Steve Earle fan. And uh, my friend uh, had a girlfriend who worked at Meadowbrook, whatever that was called in Detroit, one of those outdoor readers. Dylan was the headliner. Steve Earle was the opener. Steve Earle played, and she took me backstage, and I was probably 20 feet from Dylan in the wings, and I couldn't have cared less. It's a long way of saying, why Bob Dylan? No one was listening to Bob Dylan in 83, 84, 85, 86. What, what, what happened there? Well, just before you saw him with Steve Earle, I saw him with, I saw Dylan in the Dead, and I also saw Dylan and Tom Petty. And I vaguely remember seeing all three of them together. I'm not sure if that's possible. Did you care that you were seeing Dylan, or did you go to see Petty? Petty was much bigger in 1985, 86, 87. I cared to see Dylan because I already was something of a student of rock and roll, and I knew it was important. I understand. The performance itself, I didn't get much out of it at all, except noise, really. I didn't know what it meant to listen to Dylan as one comes to listen to Dylan, knowing that he is changing uh sublimating mixing matching and you know he's not presenting he's not presenting the work in the way it was recorded i didn't know that but i knew that it was historic it felt historic it was historic 40 years ago right yes at the time it was like you have to see this guy before you die and at the age of 16 17 18 you know we think a little bit about death but it seemed like he was close right yes because he was well younger probably than we are now at that time (laughs) Right. Funny, funny right? Um, and uh, my my real encounter with Dylan, and this is something that a previous guest, uh, Rebecca Slayman, has done a little research on this. It was the classic freshman year of college. Ah. I got freewheeling in the in the record store, and that was it. I was done. And that, at the age of eighteen, was when it really lit up. When you went to see Dylan and, and got hooked when you were eighteen. And started, was it immediately an interest in digging deep, or were you just enjoying the music? I had another classic entree, which was that I worked at the college radio station, and I just raided the collection, and I took my cassette tapes, and I just I recorded every album that they had, and uh, just got immersed in it. It was not really in any chronological order, you know, so it was 1988, and I basically rec- I recorded everything that they had, which was the entire catalog. And I just, uh, at a certain point, left college, and my, uh, my travel music was mostly Dylan. I remember particularly being obsessed with Blood on the Tracks and John Wesley Harding, 
and infidels uh, were really big ones for me. By the time I was 21, 22, I just knew them all by heart. So this is interesting. Um, you mentioned infidels there, which is an interesting point because you came to Dylan 20 years into his career, what some thought was a fallow period. We know that's not true now. Um, so you looked at the music unencumbered by the legend of those first few albums to some extent. I think I was unencumbered by everything because I was so encumbered by trying to get myself (laughs) together and figure out what my life was supposed to be. So as far as I'm concerned, Dylan was just this wise pal who seemed to have an understanding of what was important and seemed to have been through the same kind of heartbreak that I was going through and all the wandering. And I was a musician at the time, so obviously I was living out the you know, the Dylan Guthrie trope of a, of a, of a backpack and a guitar. And um, it was, like Springsteen says, the Dylan is the brother you never had. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense that he was... I actually felt he was very, very kind to me in the sense that he was someone that was talking to me regardless of the shape I was in and really giving the same good advice over and over again, just in the form of albums. Well, well the, the, this is interesting. You know, I know the quote about the, like a brother you never had, but at that point, Dylan is already old enough to be your father. You know, and the, it was still not cool, still not retro to cool to like retro things in the eighties. Did you have a sense of his age? Did that did that matter to you? I had a sense of Dylan as being the generation before the um, the a gener <laughs> a generation before Tom Petty, a generation before the Cars. Uh, I, I had a sense that he was an elder statesman. It was when I said brother, I didn't mean brother. It was dad, right? It was, it was more of a father figure, but a father figure who was who was having experiences like the ones I wanted to have, you know, in whatever dark passageways I was traveling and traveling a bit rough. This was uh, for me a mentor figure of a certain kind. Did you consume books, scholarship on on uh, on Dylan? I didn't. I didn't get to that until much later. The first one was uh, Mystery Train, the Greal Marcus classic Greal Marcus book that sort of mm-hmm. does a certain kind of invention of, of, a, of a particular kind of rock writing that definitely influences me to the depths. And then the one that uh, blew everything up for me was, uh, was Invisible Republic, now known as the Old Weird America, also Greal Marcus, which I came to uh, a few years after that, actually when I was in graduate school quite a few years after that. Um, and it really um, influenced my, my doctorate, which was, on <laughs> which was on wisdom systems of early Christian, rabbinic Jewish, and, and Roman rhetoricians. I really didn't want to read the books because I didn't want to be influenced by the books. I wanted to be influenced by the music. But at a certain point, once I you know, bit the apple of Greal Marcus's work, there was no turning back, and then I wanted to consume as much as I could. I want to talk about scholarship. The tradition in most um, traditional religions, but I think particularly in Judaism, of people who are more traditionally inclined, part of the work is going through the text and um, arguing about it and trying to find meaning in it. And that core essence of wrestling with received text is part of your upbringing, separate of Dylan. I don't feel like I've wrestled with Bob Dylan at all. I feel like 
I've walked with him, meaning mm. he's not walking with me, obviously, but I have felt, and I felt this way about scores of musicians and writers and artists, because it's that feeling of traveling a path where you may in fact be alone at certain stages for stretches of time but never alone once you're in that pantheon at least as a careful listener a careful observer not a creator necessarily although i'd say that most of those folks would say that if you're creating you're part of that pantheon too you know at a certain at a certain level it was it was not at all about wrestling with Dylan. It was about Dylan giving permission to wrestle with everything. Part of that mentorship that I've experienced as a listener of Bob Dylan is that um, he does express a lot of pain about how he feels or who he is or his place in the world in God's universe, where you know even the birds are chained to chained to the skies. He said, but he gets it out. Whether it's getting it out in idiot wind, but then there's always sort of a, in, in religious texts, we call it sort of a messianic peroration, which is basically that <laughs> there's always a bit of hope at the end. It's, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there, but sure. it's also going to get light. There yeah. is always, in my listening, hope, and that's true of whatever inter, you know, personal experiences of emotions, the interpersonal relationships, and the relationship with the divine. You know, if you grew up in the Judaism of, of the film, The Serious Man, the Coen brothers, that was made about the moments when Dylan was coming of age as a Jew in Minnesota, right? That movie takes place more or less in St. Paul, Minneapolis-St. Paul, but everybody from Hibbing or Duluth would go to Minneapolis-St. Paul. That was the Jewish capital of the region, right? And he went to Camp Herzl, with 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 the you know you've got pictures of Dylan at 16 chubby face with a guitar with his bunk mates and 3 or 4 years later he's exploding the world right yeah. so um i i think that it would be hard to imagine any figure of real import in any religious system these days who would not feel intensely limited by the religious systems into which they were born. If you look around, it is very difficult to find someone who is a truly on the path, mainstream, religious, observant person who's exploded whatever universe they're in. Yeah. We don't, religions don't play that role anymore. They, they, we, don't, we don't have Augustines. We don't have Maimonides. We don't have um, uh, these kinds of figures because there are just so many other ways to experience what religion used to do. All right, so I'm, I'm going to take that cue. I'm going to read a, a few uh, words from the book here. Even when it overreaches, and perhaps especially when it overreaches, popular music, just like religion, seeks personal and communal transcendence. That usually hap happens in a congregational setting, whether it's you know in a church or a synagogue or a mosque or in a rock and roll concert. But Dylan does not give celebratory concerts, <laughs> so I, I want to understand a little bit more about what you're talking about about music as a uh, as it relates to religion and the similarities between the two. Well, the great scholar Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, described the Sabbath as a cathedral in time or cathedral of time. And I'd also, you know, and so in that in that vein of thinking about cathedrals as holy spaces or time as being holy, 
um, I think Dylan sanctifies experience and feeling. So when he mm-hmm. asks, how does it feel? He's asking the same question that, you know, King David is said to ask in the, in, in the famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? The calling out to something greater than oneself um, can happen in a field or at night alone or uh, rising in the morning for a day of work. It doesn't matter. Uh, the internalization of the message, I think, is in a large part the way most of us live our lives. I think it's harder and harder to engage in large-scale, thoughtful, nuanced sensibilities, um, maybe it's always been difficult to do so in religion. Maybe religion is, you know, a kind of flattening and massification, right, <laughs> of, 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 of nuance, of nuanced experience. But the beauty, I think, of, of the rock and roll revolution, one of the elements, is that when you were listening to whatever Dylan album you were listening to, in thousands of bedrooms across your world, other people were doing the same thing. You were imbibing the same uh, elixir uh, just in separate rooms. And one of the powers of coming together at a Dylan concert is looking around and thinking, wow, he really means all that to all these people too. I would just add that one of the things that Dylan does, I think intentionally, he does not let the music get sticky. He is not going to play, you know, Iron Man for you or uh, Born to Run for you, right? right. So, that, so that you can all be together in the same place. He's going he's gonna to mix it up because he doesn't want to get bored because he's in this constant state of, of, of exploration. And in that sense, it scrambles the communal experience by definition because he is not going to give you something to sing along to. All right, let's talk about fandom a little bit. Um, What is the value of years-long fandom beyond just entertainment, beyond just enjoying the songs? Uh, What what does that many decades of fandom feel like for you in regards, in this case specifically, to Bob Dylan? Well, as troubled and and as messed up as we may be because of our families, one thing that we can count on is that those are the people we're going to see and in, in many times, those are the only people truly that we can turn to in, in moments where, you know, you couldn't share your mess with anybody else, certain things that you can share with your family uh, that you don't share with anybody else. And I would think of, of musicians when, when you're on that long journey with them, it's a bit akin to that, pun intended, I suppose, whereby there is this level of continuity and shared history uh, which obviously, you know, we as listeners bring to the musicians. They don't, they're not, sh- they're sharing elements of their history with us, but we don't know them. That longevity teaches us about life. It's also pretty amazing when, uh, particularly, you know, for those of us during COVID time who haven't seen relatives for months or even years, to see age happening, change, you know, uh, the limp, uh, the gray hair, whatever it is. It's about mortality and change and, and the, the power of time and also maintaining a certain continuity, seeing humanness and yeah. also seeing who's really got the talent, you know, uh, who's really got it. You know, when was the last great song that the that the that the Rolling Stones wrote? 
you know, what, what was the last song that was really a great song? I mean, there have been some, some standout songs in not so recent past, but, but nobody's done anything like Rough and Rowdy Ways. You know, Dylan's got songs on there that would stand up to anything he's ever written, which is astounding. Uh, I would actually argue that it literally is no one. There are plenty of people that in that age range that are writing decent, even good songs at that age. Um, I don't think there's anyone that's working at the same level they worked at when they were in their 20s. You know, I think someone like Tom Petty, if he had stayed, you know, could have possibly been there. Um, I don't think Springsteen's work is held up in the same way. Dylan has a kind of stamina that there's never been a career. I mean, Sammy Davis Jr., like name me a performer that's been active and engaged from, you know, his late teens until 80 years old now. There's another lovely section of the book, and a lot of what you talk about with um, Dylan and in the podcast is um, about the art of memory um, and the value of recording memories, you know, to the two legendary, well, one is legendary and one will be one day, um, Desolation Rose, um, cataloging of names and faces, um, as he said, rearranged, and Murder Most Foul, which I think is the direct successor to Desolation Row. Um, again, cataloging. Uh, talk a little bit about memory, the value of memory, and uh, especially as it relates to um, music and Bob Dylan in particular. If you think about a world where uh, the written word was not primary for almost anyone, uh, not so many years ago, really, could even be hundreds of years ago for many of the people near or less. Memory's a life or death question, right? If you don't know your heritage, uh, the shopping list, uh, your sacred text, uh, the names of the people in your family, where you used to live, uh, the ingredients for the cure for whatever disease is ailing you, it was through memory that you had those things. That That is a primary heritage of humanity I don't know, thumbs, language, memory. Uh, we are what we remember, period. All right, I want to touch a third rail here. I'm, um, you're white and middle-aged. Every single person, except for the ushers, was white when I saw Dylan two weeks ago. Um, they weren't all... I was pleased to notice that there were many young people, um, some in their 20s. Some people brought their kids who were pretty miserable, but um, <laughs> um, but a, a pretty good representation of 20s and 30s. Um, Dylan has told the story of black people in song... Um, a few times, a few significant times. We know the death of Emmett Till, Hurricane about her and Kane Carter, um, uh, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. What gives him the right, as a white person, to sing about black people? I can't, I can't give a good answer because I'm white, you know? I can't speak, I can't speak above, above, beyond, behind or for, you know, what, what I'm not. I think Dylan has said, and I don't think he said it in jest, that it was a civil war where America died, was, you know, was crucified, died, and, and resurrected, but that that schism is the core behind everything that he's ever written. I don't know exactly what he means by that. I spend some time on that in the book. It's, um, to my mind, my simple mind, and I also live 
I live in Israel. I live in Jerusalem. I grew up in America, obviously, and spent a lot of time there. But I'm not. I'm not living there now. Um, I'm living there mythologically as much as that and paying taxes. I just don't have a, a simpler uh, description of what is at the core of the American story than race. Uh, slavery is the is the narrative. Can I even serve as a witness for that? Can Dylan, you know, as a white person? I don't know. I, I suspect that Dylan so loves music and so loves America or the idea of America that um, it's just unavoidable. He doesn't have a choice if he's paying attention but to enter into those narratives. It's a, it's a pretty central part of this book. I mean, uh, one of the things I think makes the book appeal across fan boundaries, for lack of a better phrase, is empathy. And I think something you said at the outset here in this part of the conversation about bearing witness, that we all have a responsibility to bear witness, whether it's, it has direct, the events have a direct impact on us or not, although some would argue they all have a direct impact on us, especially in America, because we're all Americans. So maybe it's just bearing witness that Dylan feels that it's important to bear witness. The bearing witness is also um, some people have no some people have eyes and ears that don't allow them not to. And I think uh, I'm going to sum up here in that that's what makes the book important about Madden God and Law, your book important is yes it's about dylan but it's about many of the things we've talked in this podcast about humanness about empathy about bearing witness about not forgetting these are core elements uh of how to have a civilized society and it feels like some of those have gone away or they've been misinterpreted we've um you know um, forgotten a lot of our history the, the lessons of history um, and I think that's why this book matters beyond whether you just want to read another Dylan book or not. I appreciate all of that. Uh, it's really been more than anything else about trying to find a way from inside the music to outside to the things that matter. And I think that's the Dylan's story. I think he's been that's a his, genius. It's his uh, story, but it's also his demand of his audience. Well, to go, we want someone who can help us go from the inside to the outside or from the outside to the inside. Something yeah. which becomes seamless so that we can feel the things we feel, face the de demons we face, and still face ourselves in the mirror and other people who are actually the mirror also, you know? Yeah. All right. Uh, we got to wrap this up, but uh, off the top of your head, two questions. You ready? I know people always say uh, it changes every day w with particular artists, but what is your favorite Dylan song right now? Man, just like Tom Thumb's blues. That's that's a good choice. And uh, what is an obscure Dylan song? Really obscure, truly obscure that you um, count among your favorites. Are you, you going to say Winterlude? Is it Winterlude? No. no. <laughs> um, the two are up to me, uh, and um, and uh, I I like uh, an Angelina. All the tired horses. I read someone, I forgot who said this, but all the tired horses in the sun, how am I supposed to get any riding done? That he saying, thinks that it's actually riding. That it's a play on words. Oh, how am I supposed to get any riding done? Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then the song, I can't remember the title. I can hear the turning of the key. Uh, it's a great version that um, uh, knew the, the guy from Bad Company sings on that, on that collection. Um, We'll have to look that one up. Abram right? Joshua Heschel, right? Isn't he the no, lead singer of Bad Company? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
Well, th this has been fun. You know, I thank you for great questions, for being a traveler in the journey along the way. I hope we'll talk here again. But uh, David Bellotti, a master listener to music and a great, great friend. So thanks for thinking about all this and for inviting us to, to have this conversation. You're welcome, and thank you for uh, the, the good work on the podcast and in putting this uh, in this very truly interesting book together. You got it, brother. Alone, I'm walking down the line, walking down the line, and I'm walking down the line. My fate will be fine. I tell it by my troubled mind. This has been episode 8 of season 2 of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. The story of what happens when two guys walk into a coffee shop in Philadelphia and talk about Bob Dylan and the book that one of them wrote about his spiritual wisdom. Find the book at mangodlaw.com or whatever books are sold. Next time, we'll be mixing it up with a combination that goes together like... Something and something, as we said previously, we're actually still figuring out how these things go together. We're getting closer. One of them is not like the other indeed, but maybe they are like the other. I mean, as the great Curly Howard once said, and we will say it again. Hey, my mother and your mother are both mothers. Yes, mothers and muses. That's right. That's the next episode in the works coming to you in just two weeks. So stay tuned. We are very proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Check out all of the wonderful podcasts for music lovers at PantheonPodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thanks for coming. See you soon. Go to sleep last night, Lord, I'm walking down the line. Walking down the line. Lord, I'm walking down the line. My fate will be fine. Tell about my troubled mind. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Pantheon.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.